Thank you. Be seated, please. Again, it's good to see you all and greet you this morning in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Perhaps of most significance to me than anyone else uh, present, but a year ago today, I was home trying to recover from uh, kidney stones when I had a heart attack. So uh, I'd much rather be here uh, standing in the pulpit than having a heart attack in the corner of the hospital. So um, anyhow, thank you. Thank the Lord that he's granted life. Encourage you to open your Bibles this morning to the Gospel according to Mark as we continue our considerations in this Gospel. And we'll want to read in our hearing today verses 14 and 15 of Mark chapter 1. Let us hear God's Word. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. May God be pleased to bless his word, and may his people say, Let's pray together. Holy Father, I trust intellectually I have some grasp of our text and our subject, but I realize that the preaching of this text requires more. Lord, I need to be gripped by the truth and reality of your word. And I need more than human reasoning. Lord, I need faith, spiritual understanding, and power from above. So please, Father, we ask for Christ's sake, open my mouth that I may preach as I ought the truths of this passage. And Lord, for Christ's sake, give us ears to hear with understanding and will submissive to your truth, your reality, your will. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Begin today with some introductory comments. And then we will notice a little bit more about the passage and then try to make some concluding comments, observations, and applications. Verses 14 and 15 of this chapter are what I would refer to as transitional verses. We are transitioning in this, these verses in location. Jesus is moving from Judea to Galilee. We are transitioning from the ministry of John Baptist to the ministry of Christ. We are transitioning, or there's transition in these verses for Jesus from obscurity to popularity. He's been basically not on the scene, as it were. We transition from Jesus' preparation for ministry to his engagement in public ministry. And really, this verse serves as a transitional passage in the very gospel of Mark itself. In very typical Mark fashion, 
this transition that we have here is stated in a very concise but pregnant statement in these two, two verses that I have read. It's been about a year between verse 13 and verse 14. And that period of time is covered pretty extensively in the Gospel of John. And Hendrickson writes that the events related in John chapter 1, verse 19 through John chapter 4, verse 42 occurred during this period of time, this basically this year period that, that we close at the temptation, the baptism and temptation of Christ. And then John picks up, excuse me, Mark picks up the narration about a year later. But during that time, and this, I have a map on the back of your notes you can look at if you want and it's not, uh, I didn't create it, I borrowed it, and I've shared it with you, but there's a lot of movement here of Jesus, so we see a lot of transitioning happening. Let me just run through some things. In John 1, 43, <clears throat> Jesus goes to Galilee. He, he goes to, uh, uh, to Canaan in Galilee, where, of course, he will perform his first miracle. Well, he's baptized in Judea. He's been in that area, and he's been in the wilderness. Now he goes to, to Galilee. In chapter 2, verse 13, Jesus uh, goes to uh, Jerusalem, which means he goes back to Judea. And then he goes to Jerusalem because uh, the Passover is at hand. In John chapter 3, verse 22, Jesus and his disciples go into the Judean countryside where the disciples of Jesus are baptizing people. Um, in John chapter 4, Jesus leaves Judea and he departs again for Galilee. But you know the story according to John 4 Verse 4, he had to go through Samaria. So he's traveling again from Judea to Galilee, and the way there is through Samaria. And that's where he meets the woman at the well and has that great conversation with her. And we read in John 4:43 that after two days that he spends um, there in Samaria, he departs for Galilee. And that's where our text picks up. So a lot has happened. A year has elapsed. And... Mark doesn't mention that. As we've pointed out, Mark is very, very concise. He's right to the point. And so from, we close with the temptation of Jesus. Now after John was arrested, about a year has gone by. Now, <clears throat> our text, uh, Jesus goes to Capernaum by the sea. Now that sounds like a resort, doesn't it? Capernaum by the sea. Capernaum by the sea. Before John's arrest, Jesus traveled with a small group of disciples, and he didn't speak a lot publicly. His public speaking is very limited. But as one said, after John's arrest, Jesus steps out of the shadows, lifts his voice with strength. So he leaves Judea, humanly speaking, possibly to avoid conflict with the Pharisees because his ministry is beginning to grow. John's been in conflict. Jesus leaves that area, maybe to avoid that conflict, a premature uh, pushing of events, as it may be, and he goes uh, to Galilee. Now, Matthew, in Matthew 4, which also records this, we're told that Jesus going to Capernaum is also fulfillment of prophecy, the prophecy of Isaiah. So there might have been human reasons for him going, but there is divine reason, and that is God. In his prophecy, has said this is where Jesus will come and go to. Now, thinking about Capernaum by the sea, it's got such a nice ring to it. 
But you need to understand what we're Capernaum by the sea, what, what that means, where it is, what's happening. Jeff Thomas writes, <clears throat> this is the heart of the old northern kingdom. Remember Israel and Judea, Judah. This is the heart of the old northern kingdom. Renowned for its spiritual darkness. It was morally and religiously confused, compromised. Its people had some fear of Jehovah, and yet they served their own gods. This was not our own beloved Galilee of we Jews, but Galilee of the pathetic, depraved, and deprived Gentiles, a very unattractive area. And this is where Jesus goes. Secondly, I would say not only these verses transitional, but these verses are what I'll call gateway verses. We have, we have for us here in a synoptic form, in verses 14 and 15, we have in synoptic form the ministry and message of Jesus Christ. That's what it is. Now you turn the page, the next verse, and Mark will begin to work out what it means to be in the kingdom of God and the preaching of the gospel of God. He will work that out for you. So this, this verse is a gateway verse. We have the historical setting given to us. Verse 14, when Jesus begins his public ministry is when John is arrested. And we have also an interpretation. We have a summary statement of the ministry of Jesus Christ. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So those two verses, there's a lot packed in there. And I hope that we can begin to see some of, some of that as we consider it today. Now Mark, as I said, will illustrate the kingdom of God. He will illustrate the gospel of God in the following chapters and verses. Theologian Edwards in his commentary, James Edwards on, on Mark writes this, then follows, after this verse 15, then follows a series of 13 carefully crafted vignettes depicting Jesus as a teacher, healer, and exorcist in and around Capernaum, often in conflict with Jewish authorities. So Mark makes a very definite statement, and then he's going to illustrate that for us in the preaching and public ministry of Jesus Christ. Okay. So keep these two verses in mind. As we move ahead in the Gospel of Mark, if you want to remember what's the theme, what, what's going on, go back. Go back to Mark 1, verses 14 and 15. There it is. He states it for you. Thirdly, I would notice about verses 14 and 15 that these verses are Christocentric. What do you mean by that big word? I mean it's focused on Jesus Christ. He is the center he is the heartbeat of this passage. Now, I don't want to chase this down, but I just want to mention this because as I was trying to prepare my own mind and heart for this, I just thought of the, of the historic and redemptive magnitude of these verses. God becomes man, Emmanuel. And these two verses record for us when Emmanuel, God with us, steps out, as it were, into his public ministry and what he preaches and what he says. And to me, that has great historical, I'm sure to you, historical 
and redemptive relevance. But I want to quote Jeff Thomas, a rather lengthy quote, so please listen. I know it's, it's hard sometimes to follow quotes, but please give, a, give your ear to this. Consider those people who had been converted and baptized through the ministry of John, who heard the grim news that Herod's soldiers had arrested John. They would have been utterly depressed. What was the Lord doing? He had removed the greatest preacher in the world. God Himself had snuffed out that light. He had allowed this punishment to fall upon an utterly righteous man who loved Him. Think of the Psalms we have heard read in our hearing the last two weeks. What's, what's happening? Of all people, not John. He is, he is the one who is, is really a light, but he's bearing witness of the light. He's pointing to Christ. Thousands were dying who needed to hear his messages. Tens of thousands would have turned up if, he were, if it were announced that John was going to preach somewhere. Imagine that. Think about that. I think about some of the great revivalists. I think of some people like Spurgeon or of Whitfield. And sometimes it could be announced they're going to be such and such a place and thousands and tens of thousands of people would come to hear. Well, John is preaching and his fame is going forth and people are coming from all around Judea into the wilderness to hear John and be baptized by John. What is God doing? Doesn't He know these people need to hear? Doesn't He know these people need to see the light and be set free to be saved? And yet the greatest preacher on the planet earth of that day is put away into a prison cell. Wow. I read on. But John was behind bars in a horrible dungeon. What was happening? God buries his workmen and builds his church. The church is built on the rock, on God's unsalable truths. Its foundation is not human personalities. Men like us are all expendable in the sight of God. Strike down a shepherd and the Lord will rise and raise another. The Lord will build His church. Let a tyrant kill John the Baptist and God brings out Jesus to preach the Sermon on the Mount. For the Lord must build His church. We are not strategists standing around a table covered with a vast map of Israel, the Mediterranean, Jerusalem, Samaria, the Jordan Valley, and the Lake of Galilee, with the light shining brightly on it. We will raise a preacher in this place or that place and arrange a revival here or arrange a revival there. It's never like that. End quote. So at this point, I would give a cautionary word to my fellow elders and seminarian. Remember, God doesn't have to have us. Stay humble, stay prayerful, and stay thankful. And every time you have the opportunity to preach, preach like you're never sure to preach again. Because one day it might be a year ago for you that you're standing there and something goes haywire in your body. To my fellow believers, beware of personalities. That is one of the great problems of our day. And it is exacerbated by multimedia beware of personalities the message is what is important not the messenger beware of specialized ministries and again this is a plague of our day 
Beware of specialized ministries that take perhaps a truth, an aspect of truth, and it becomes the all in all. And, and, you, and you go after a while, you go, where's, where's Jesus? Where's Christ? I hear you, but you're so loud hitting one side of the symbol or triangle or whatever, I can't really see Christ in that anymore. You're all about your point. Beloved people, beware because we live in a time where we are immersed with specialties and personalities. Our text gives us two great interconnected themes. And I'm really going to weight my comments today to one of them. But the two great interconnected themes here are, in my opinion, the gospel of God and the kingdom of God. I'd really thought about perhaps doing an excursus on the kingdom of God, spend a week or two or three on, on that subject because it's so critical. But I think that as we get going into Mark, you'll see if you have under, don't know what that means, you don't understand the definition of the kingdom, I'll give a little bit today, but you'll see it. That's what I said. This verse is transitional. This verse is gateway. Mark is about to show you what the kingdom of God is. And he's about to display and illustrate for you what the gospel of God is. But for our purposes today, I want to focus primarily on the preaching of Jesus. Now, connected to that will be the kingdom of God. Okay? So I want to begin with Jesus the preacher. Verse number 14. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of of God. Think about that title. The Gospel of God. Verse 1 of Mark is the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Now this is the only time Mark will use this particular appellation, this particular title of the Gospel. The only time he'll use it. But you'll find it often used, especially by the Apostle Paul, he often refers to the gospel of God. Romans chapter 1, verse 1, it's the gospel of God. In Romans 15, verse 16, it's the gospel of God. 2 Corinthians eleven seven, the gospel of God. 1 Thessalonians verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 2, verse 8, verse 9, the gospel of God. Paul uses that phrase a lot. But Mark uses it this once. The gospel of God is not good news about God. That's not what he's saying. But it's good news from God. Now I want you to think with me. The gospel of God. Oh, by the way, one more thing on this before I move on. And going back to the, the scholar James Edward. He says the verb proclaiming here in verse number 14. Jesus was, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming. He ties it back into in Isaiah 61 and Joel 2.1 says the same verbiage is used, and he makes this statement, and I quote, the passages, uh, these passages, Isaiah and Joel, uh, they announce the eschatological reign of God, the end, reign of, end time reign of God. Verse 15 suggests that in Jesus' proclamation of the good news of God, the reign of God foreseen by the prophets, Isaiah and Joel, has arrived. Now he's putting that all on that verb. I'm not that much of a grammarian when it comes to the, to the Greek for sure. All right. Go back to the thought of the gospel of God. 
from start to finish, maybe finish isn't the right word, <laughs> to completion, maturity, to realization, from the beginning to the total realization of glory at the return of Christ. It's all God's work. It's God's salvation. The plan and purpose of salvation are God's plans. The promise of salvation unto sinners by faith is God's promise. The guarantee of salvation to those that confess Christ and believe in Him is God's guarantee. It is God who provides the Lamb. It is God who grants faith. It is God who gives sight to blind eyes. It is God who removes stony hearts and gives a heart of flesh. It's God's gospel. It is God who renews sinful wills and effectually draws sinners to Jesus Christ. It's God who so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him will never perish. It's God's Messiah. It's God's gospel. In Romans chapter 8, verses 32 through 34, it is God who is for us. It is God who did not spare His own Son. It is God who justifies. It is God who loves us with an eternal, inseparable love. It's God's gospel. Hear God's gospel from Titus. As I read you some verses from Titus chapter 3, verse 4. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration, renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. I think the next time someone throws in my face and, and scowls at the doctrine of the grace of God, salvation by the amazing grace of God, I'm going to say, well, but it's profitable. That's what God's Word says. The doctrines of grace are profitable for you. And he tells us very clearly here, this is God's gospel. The gospel of God is good news of what God has done. And this truth of salvation of God's gospel is profitable. Okay, let's look closer now at Jesus the preacher. Look at Mark chapter 1. What, do you, what would you say is one of the primary works of Jesus when he was on the earth? Probably a lot of people wouldn't say preaching, but the Word of God says it's preaching. Look at verse 39 of Mark chapter 1. Jesus said to them, Let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also. For that is why I came out. The reason I'm not in obscurity, the reason I'm not hidden away somewhere in Nazareth, the reason I have come out is to go preach the gospel in these towns. In Corinth, people aligned themselves according to personalities. I've already spoken about that. But there were those in Corinth that said, well, I'm a, I'm a Paul, persuasive Paul. Yeah, I can understand that. And Paul didn't want that, but you know, people kind of gravitated toward Paul. 
And you know, when he preached in front of Agrippa, the reason I call him Persuasive Paul is Agrippa said, would you persuade me in the short time you have before me to, that I would be a Christian too? <laughs> and Yeah, Paul would have. He absolutely would have. He would have persuaded. In fact, he wanted to persuade men of the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Yet it's interesting, the as persuasive as Paul was in Ephesians 6, he asked the church at Ephesus to pray for me. Paul saying, pray for me. That I may open my mouth and, and declare boldly the gospel of God as I ought to do. Then there's articulate Apollos. That's some of the people in Corinth, they wanted to follow Apollos. I think of Apollos, I think of later on in church history of Chrysostom, the golden throat. Because the scripture says of Apollos, he was an eloquent man. Eloquent man. I've heard some eloquent men. And I wished I had their voice. Just their voice alone is like, huh. And the scripture says of Paul, he's an eloquent man and competent in scripture. That's pretty good uh, tools to have, to have in your bag, to be eloquent and competent, especially if you're a preacher. And then there's passionate Peter. We think of the sermon at, um, on Pentecost, and we think of all those people, and you go, well, you read the sermon, you go, man, he didn't, he didn't preach a lot. But then you miss that little verse, if you're not careful, verse 40 says, and with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them. So Paul and Peter didn't just you know, preach a five-minute sermon and back off. Now, he continued to press it on them. Who's the greatest preacher you've ever heard? I've been blessed in my day to hear some great preachers. Person. I won't start naming them because I forget somebody, but I've heard a lot. I have heard many on, I was going to say tape. I don't even do tapes anymore. <laughs> but on tape, men that are long gone. Lloyd-Jones, Tozer, others. I've also been able to, to read many great sermons by men, great preachers. I remember one time, I'll tell this little story, I remember one time in the place where I was that somebody apparently had gone in my office and lying on my desk, I assume it's something like these notes here that I'm using were laying on my desk. Anyhow, the word got out, well, he's, he's reading somebody's sermons. I said, it's probably my sermon. But, but my answer to that was, well, look at my shelves. I have hundreds of volumes of books on my shelves. What do you think this is? <laughs> What do you think? I'm reading these people. Yeah, I read sermons. So I'm not ashamed of that. Yeah, I've been blessed to hear great uh, ministers in my day. But no preacher. Not John Baptist. Not persuasive Paul. Not eloquent Apollos. Not persistent Peter. Not any of them. Hold a candle. To Jesus Christ, the preacher. In Matthew 4 that I referenced earlier about Jesus going to Capernaum by the sea, in Matthew 4, it gives us a definition of that place that Jesus goes into. Before Jesus goes, the people lived in darkness and fear and ignorance. They were blinded. But Jesus came preaching there. And this is what I read in Matthew 4. The people dwelling in darkness... I've seen a great light. 
And for those dwelling in the region and the shadow of death, on them light has dawned. And you read it and you go, Amen. Wow. This is the preaching of Jesus. Notice with me in Mark 1, I don't want to get over into where Pastor John will go, but I still thunder, but I want to just make a point here if I can, because he's picking up the series now uh, after today. But in Mark chapter 1, I want you to notice the unsettling nature of Jesus' preaching. And I'll, I'll not read all these verses, but in verses 21 through 28, he's in Capernaum, and immediately, as Mark would write it, he, uh, Christ goes on the Sabbath day to the synagogue, and he's teaching, and people are astonished at his teaching. But something else very interestingly happens. There was a demoniac that was hiding out in the synagogue. And when Jesus preaches, this demoniac, um, verse 24, says to Jesus, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Now think about this. Apparently this demoniac was able to hide out in the synagogue safely. Until Jesus came preaching. And when Jesus came preaching, immediately this demoniac is discovered. Light shines in darkness. And the darkness doesn't like it. Now, Think about the unrepentant sinners. I'm not talking about sinners because we're all sinners. But I'm talking about unrepentant sinners. Think of unrepentant sinners that hide out, as it were, in the congregation of the Lord in our day. Dennis Rader was, I hate not even say his name, but he was, he's the BTK serial killer. He was a member of a church and actually the, the president in, in, the, in that congregation. Finally, he was discovered not by preaching, but by law. You know, and we've all heard stories. There's been times where a person has faithfully attended a congregation, a church, maybe like Raider. They, are, they hold office in the church, could be preacher, deacon, whatever, treasurer, who knows. But they, they're... they're they're, they're respected by their peers in the church. And then all of a sudden, one day, it's revealed this man was a pedophile. Or this woman was a serial adulterer. Or something else. And they have sat there all these years, unabused, as it were, by the gospel. So think again now back to Mark. Jesus goes to the synagogue and he stands and preaches. And there's a demoniac there who apparently has been comfortable up to now. But when light shines, he screams out, What are you doing here? I know who you are. All oh, that we could have such preaching in our day. Jesus said in John 16, and when He comes, speaking of the Holy Spirit, He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Sometimes it makes me wonder, 
Is the Holy Spirit really attending our preaching? Because when the Spirit comes, He will convict concerning sin because they do not believe in me, concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no more, concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. Yes, we meet this afternoon for prayer and we should be feverishly praying that God would grant us such unction that we can preach as we ought to preach and that He would give such power and clarity then fourthly, or the next point, verse 15, I would note the urgency of Jesus' preaching. Get back to my text. Let's look a little bit at the grammar here. The time is fulfilled. That's what Jesus says when He comes preaching the gospel of God. The time is fulfilled. Now the word in kairos, time, does not mean a progression of time like sometimes we think of things in a linear fashion. That's not, what's, that's not what's being said here. But rather it's a critical or opportune time. The opportune moment has come. <coughs> 2,000 years earlier, God had promised Abraham that his seed would be a blessing to the nations. That promise has been repeated in the Old Testament and expanded in the Old Testament through Moses, through David, and through the prophets. And now Christ says the time is fulfilled. That promise is realized. Jesus is standing in front of them saying that the time is fulfilled. Those promises are realized here, now, in Jesus. The next word is fulfilled. Well, I just said that. It's not talking about a, it's talking about a completion or fixed period of time. Um, let, me, let me read Edwards again. God has brought the time of prophecy, Mark 1, 2, and 3, to a close and has inaugurated the final phase of history. The arrival of God's kairos time demands a change in thinking. And thus Jesus says, follow the, follow the thinking, Thus Jesus says, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Is that the end of the sentence? What? There's something that must be, there must be a response to that. Repent and believe in the gospel. Now Jesus preached that the kingdom of God is at hand. The Old Testament promise of hope is now present. The kingdom has come because the king has come. And we pray thy kingdom come and the kingdom will come because the king is coming again. The kingdom has come because the king has come and it will come again because the king is coming again. Jeff Thomas writes, The time had come when Abraham's seed would be a blessing to the nations of the world. The time had come when David's greater son would enter David's city, Jerusalem, and show his kingly power. The time had come when the suffering servant, Isaiah 53, the one in whom God delighted, would be bruised for our transgression, so that by his stripes men would be healed. The time had come which Job anticipated when his Redeemer would live and stand in the latter days upon the earth. That time had come. 
Now, the Old Testament Jews and the Jews of Jesus' day and many Protestants of our day, I think, mistakenly identify God's kingdom in geopolitical terms. But Jesus did not come to set up a geopolitical kingdom. He didn't come to set up a, a geopolitical kingdom in Judea or Galilee or Capernaum. Let me ask a question. Years ago, I was asked to... I was very busy at that time involved in um, mission work, particularly in Eastern Europe. And my context was people didn't really buy into mission work so much. And I would often hear this statement, well, why do you want to go way over yonder when we got so much to do here? And I remember responding. I responded in sermonic form to that one time at a gathering. And I read the Word of God. It says, go into Jerusalem and... Judea and Samaria and, and my whole focus was on and. Now if I took that logic that I was being pressed upon me, or it was illogic, if I took that and I took it to its furthest end, you know what? You will never say anything to anybody. Because their idea was, why do you want to go there when there's so much here? Well, my question back to them would be, well, why do you want to tell anybody about Jesus when your life's still not perfect? Hush your mouth. The whole point of missions and evangelism, the advance of the kingdom, is not that one area is totally Christianized and there's a geopolitical kingdom. Christ didn't do that. Paul didn't do that. Peter didn't do that. We don't do that. It's not about borders. It's about taking the Word of God everywhere. His kingdom is universal. It's greater than borders. God's kingdom is not about politics. It's not about borders. But His kingdom is about His rule over His people. Thus, Christ would say the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent. That's what it's about. And serve God. Worship God. Repent and believe in the gospel. Ferguson writes, life must change. The old lifestyle of indifference to God and His will must be abandoned. Why? Because the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Now, I want to move to some closing thoughts and applications. First, I want you to realize that we live in the same time and we have the same message as what I read in Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. You live in the same time as Mark. What do you mean? You live between the first advent and the second advent. That's when we live. Mark lived after the coming of Christ in the first advent, Paul did, Peter did, James did, Andrew did, you name them. They live in the same time that I live in. Christ has come, and we're expecting Him to come again. So I live in that in-between, first and second advent. So if I live in the same time, you need to understand that the message 
is the very same message. The time is fulfilled. I can stand here today and tell you that. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. It's standing right there in front of them physically in Jesus Christ. The time is fulfilled. The, the kingdom of God is at hand. What, well, what should you do with that? Well, you should repent and believe in the gospel of God. Like those to whom Jesus preached, we have a message. And, and, and the reality demands, that reality of our message demands an answer. It demands an action. Paul would say on Mars Hill when he preached in Athens before all those people, he would say to them, the times of ignorance. When are, when are times of ignorance? Well, before the light came. Before Jesus came. The times of ignorance God winked at or overlooked. But now, God commands all people everywhere to repent. Why? Paul will go on to say, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So I can, and I do stand and preach the same thing today. God commands all people everywhere to repent. Why? Because he has appointed a man. And He's raised Him from the dead. And that's the guarantee of the coming of Christ in the day of judgment. As Christians in every era, we live in a day of many, many, many distractions. That was true in Mark's day. It's true in Paul's day. It's true in our day. Some are looking for a new reign of Christ during which Israel will be elevated, the kingdom established in Judea. Others are looking for a theocratic kingdom like Israel in the Old Testament where the laws of the land will be Christianized. My understanding that both are not quite there. I have a much more basic question. I'm not, I'm not trying to shoot out in the future for you. That's, that's not what this text is about. Time is fulfilled. So I have a much, much more basic question than Israel or a theocratic kingdom that will Christianize the world. I have a much more basic question than that. Is your life controlled as it should be by the presence of God? That's a simple question. Is your life controlled as it should be by the presence of God. And I think if every one of us are honest, we will say, no. no. Jeff Thomas, again, I quote, he wrote, Jesus told everyone in Galilee to change. And I'm saying to the congregation, to the members of this church, and to every Christian in earshot, that we all need to change. Because our lives are not being controlled as they should be by the presence of God. Our discipleship lacks decisiveness, extravagance, and wonder. We have lost the thrill of the man who is digging a hole and by chance stumbles across a treasure trove. There is too much defensiveness, too many excuses for sub-Christian living, too much sheer ordinariness. We're too average 
too much looking to men. The king has come. Every time we meet here, the king is here. We have to turn and change and move on to new levels of zeal and dedication and knowledge and cross-bearing and forgiveness and hope. End quote. Why? I'm not... Well, I'll just put it in positive. Why? Because the time is fulfilled. The kingdom is near. Repent and believe the gospel. That's why. I'm not... I just don't want us to drift out into the Netherland and get all tied up in eschatological knots and arguments about what it's going to be. My question is to you right now, right here in your life today, now. Is, king, is Jesus king of your life? Are you in the kingdom of God or not? That's my question. There is the same urgency that's needed today that was needed in the day of Jesus. Jesus said the time is fulfilled. There's an urgency there. And that same urgency is needed today. Quote Lloyd-Jones, and I do this mainly for our pastors, myself. You're not simply imparting information when you're preaching. You're dealing with souls. You're dealing with pilgrims on the way to eternity. You're dealing with matters not only of life and death in this world, but eternal destiny. Nothing can be so terribly urgent. I would that I had the skill of a polis where I could be eloquent of speech so I could convince you of that reality. There's nothing so terribly important in your life. It's where Christ is in your life. We're all good at making excuses. Something can come up and I can drop whatever just like that drop anything to do with Christ, worship. Oh. Hmm. The time is fulfilled. And to the heroes, not just to my pastor brothers, but to the heroes, you live in a, in a me-first world. It's my time. It's my body. It's my story. It's my truth. It's my life. Well, the message is that the kingdom, the king and the kingdom have come and the king and the kingdom are coming. Repent and believe in the gospel of God. Repent and believe in the gospel today. Turn from your idol of self to King Jesus today. Follow and worship the King today. Do not wait for some cataclysmic event or some future something. Turn now, today, to the King. Follow Him now, today. Follow the King now. The next, I turn the page over and guess what? The next verse is Jesus calls some men. You know what they do? They immediately leave everything 
and follow Christ. Oh, now you begin to see how the gospel of God and the kingdom of God will be worked out for you. Because the very next verses, Christ calls and they answer like now. And they leave everything to follow him. Enter the kingdom now. Follow the king now, today. Let's pray together. Holy Father, your word has confronted us with great truth and reality. May our ears be not dull or our eyes jaundiced by some pet schemes or doctrines. Grant us liberty. Strip away the scales from our eyes, the shackles from our minds, so that we may hear and see the raw, naked truth of your holy word. That we may believe the gospel of God and be citizens in the kingdom of God. Confront and conquer us with the reality of your king, your kingdom, your gospel. We humbly pray in Christ's name. Amen.